0: Adventures in Muniland, that's the author of the book that David Kotak, the Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Cumberland Advisors, co-authored. He's based in Sarasota. He is uh, in California today. And David, always a pleasure to hear your voice. Um, I wonder if you could uh, maybe just explain the, how Adventures in Muniland might actually apply to Adventures in Bitcoin. Could that be a serial? Do you think maybe is that your second volume coming up? Yeah. I'm
2: I'm thinking Tim thank you very much uh, happy holidays to you I'm thinking about writing that one but we don't have enough experience yet in bitcoin we will i suspect before this is over
0: So what do you mean by that before this is over you're implying something here
2: Well I'm in the camp that says something that can be created infinitely with mathematical formulas and that is subject to hacking and the experiences we're seeing is not a value and so cryptocurrency that isn't backed by anything other than uh, hope or an algorithm which can be repeated a hundred times and already is is not something i would invest in now there's another group i just saw a forecast today that said Next year, Bitcoin will hit 18000 Well, price fantasy ratios have been around for a while. Maybe this is a new one.
1: (laughs) Well, David, you know, you were quoted in a story published yesterday uh, by Bloomberg News. Clients bring up Bitcoin all the time, you said. They think it's cool. It has the newness, which is attractive to some people, though others would say newness is a risk they don't want to take. When clients bring up Bitcoin with you, what do you say?
2: I say if you want to speculate in this uh, remarkable evolution that has a couple of years of history and that's all, do so knowing you might make a lot of money in a gamble and you might lose it all. In managed accounts, we don't touch it. We don't touch any of the ETS funds or other organizational structures which are coming quickly to the market trying to reach them. I would distinguish between, Lisa, mathematically backed cryptocurrency, which, by the way, can work as a transaction medium, but it has no store of value that we're used to, and dollar-backed cryptocurrency or gold-backed cryptocurrency, which is catching on and is growing rapidly. It's actually growing more rapidly than the mathematical-backed cryptocurrency. And there's a reason. There's a lot of players in the world who would like to use a transactional medium and not have a record and not have it go through a banking system. Unfortunately, they're the kinds of folks that threaten the United States and others who are engaged in more transparent commercial activity.
0: All right. So, David, I'm glad you, uh, you held back there on your opinion about uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, yeah, very, I've got no very idea diplomatic. where you stand. Uh, is, there, is there something underneath this, though, that says why they are popular? What, what is it that has lent this air of uh, sort of almost inevitability about the uh, emergence of these kinds of currencies? Why do you think people are so attracted to them now?
2: Well, you got human behavior. We've seen it before. There's this wonderful new movie out, I don't know how popular it is, Tulip Fever with Judy Dench, and it attempts to replicate the tulip bubble of centuries ago, and it shows how momentum drives up prices, and it shows what happens after the fact when they collapse. Are we having one of those? Maybe. Are we having, and am I wrong? And that could be a legitimate change in reserve currencies where we're going to use algorithms to drive value instead of gold or silver or fiat currencies that we know. I would say in due time we'll find out. I'm on the side that 5,000 years of history with gold is a little stronger than five years of history with the Bitcoin.
1: I think, uh, you know, underlying certainly uh, some of the enthusiasm is the fact that investors want returns that are getting harder to get uh, in traditional asset classes. And so Bitcoin kind of represents something uh, that seems more limitless than, say, bonds that are constrained by very low yields or stocks that are constrained by very high valuations. Do you present ever alternatives to these investors? Investors that are, might be interested in Bitcoin, uh, that might be higher yielding? And if so, what, what are they?
2: Well, sure we do, Lisa. But, you know, you've, you have um, reported on interest rates and bonds for years. I've watched you. And you are in the period of time... And you know, because I've heard you report on it, we are in a decade-long period of interest rates which are extraordinarily low, driven by central bank policies, which both you and Tim have reported on many times, which are exceptional. And that distorts behavior over time. If you think about it, any professional in the financial services industry who's under 40 has never experienced – a climate other than interest rates, which are rooted in the zero interest rate policy. They've read about it in books, but they've never experienced it. So behaviors are entirely different, and that will not last forever, in my opinion. What do I know? I'm an old goat, so how do you know?
0: Well, uh, we're An not going to old we,
1: goat. Come on, be nice to yourself. We love speaking with you.
0: That's that's your new marketing slogan, right, like David Kotak, the old goat. Well, uh, David, can you tell us, uh, having said all this, what do you think is going to happen with interest rates? Do you think we're going to get four increases next year, as Goldman Sachs has uh, put out to their uh, investors?
2: I do not. I'm watching things in the credit markets. Uh, Credit card delinquency slightly rising. Real estate, mortgage structures in growing trouble. Twice as many vacancies in the commercial space area as new construction. Uh, Questions about mortgages. I mean, we're seeing elements, warning signs, yellow lights, that things aren't just so perfect. And we also see a flat yield curve. We don't know how to uh, how to interpret it because of the distortion of the European Central Bank negative interest rate policy. So we don't have the, the usual metrics. I think we are in slow growth. You heard Yellen on her sort of exit remarks say, I'm not so sure we're going to have a big inflation. Maybe we've got to go more slowly here. And now we have a whole new Fed. We're going to have an entirely new Federal Reserve within a year that has no experience with 10 years ago a credit crisis and all that sort of thing. So we're in huge uncharted waters. It's great to go to work every day. I feel like I spent the last 50 years of my life getting ready to be in business at a time like this.
1: David Kotak, thank you so much for joining us and have a wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving uh, thinking about Bitcoin and uh, the era of low rates. David Kotak, chairman and chief executive officer of Cumberland Advisors, also the co-author of the book Adventures in Muniland.
0: When Mark Dunkerley arrived at Hawaiian Airlines, the airline depended almost entirely on traffic from the United States mainland and among Hawaii's islands. Well, as chief executive, he has managed to grab a large share of the international business. International travel now accounts for about a fourth of the airline's revenue. Flights to such destinations as Japan, China, South Korea, Australia, And New Zealand. But Mark Dunkley uh, has his own destination and he is departing from Hawaiian Holdings, the uh, parent company of Hawaiian Airlines. He joins us now. Mark Dunkley, thanks for being with us. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, why are you moving on and what do you believe your legacy will be at the airline?
3: Well, Pim. First of all, it's great to talk to you again, as as it always is. Um, yeah, I you know I've been had the great good fortune to run this business for fifteen years, and um, uh, at the same time, you know, I've been a long way away from from uh, family. You can probably tell that uh, being in Hawaii and being British and having family on the East Coast uh, makes some of uh, you know keeping in touch with family a little bit difficult. So, uh, it seemed like the right time to uh, to make that move. Um, in terms of the legacy of our business, uh, I. I think it really just sort of demonstrates that um, a a small carrier with a real focus on the customer can uh, compete and win uh, in a a market of, of very big airlines.
1: Uh, In a story that we had uh, on Bloomberg News in the past few weeks, it noted how a number of the big airlines, United Continental uh, and Southwest Airlines, have expanded service or said that they were going to uh, from the mainland to Hawaii. You said at the time, had I known about this additional competition at the time I started discussing my plans with the board of directors, I would have stayed on. Can you explain that?
3: Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, one of the reasons why um, you, you get into the airline business and management capacity is because you like to fight. And, um, uh, you know, we've had a lot of competitive entry in our market during the period of time when we've grown and developed ourselves. Uh, we've always been able to beat back the competition. Um, in And so, uh, you know, I, I see no reason why uh, this next episode is going to be any different. And um, uh, I would very much much like to have been uh, in the saddle to, to, to take the fight to the uh, to, to the additional capacity.
1: So, Mark, let's say you were staying on. How would you wage this fight?
3: Well, I, I think we've got the winning combination to begin with. Um, uh, Hawaiian Airlines understands the Hawaii traveler better than any other com- uh, airline does. Um, uh, we've during the period, you know, with each successive year are rate of, you know, that margin by which we understand our, our customer better has actually increased. We're, we're in better competitive, relative competitive shape today than we were, uh, you know, four or five years ago when we had a, a, another bout of competitive entry. Um, so I think it, it's more about, uh, you know, levering all of the, the advantages that we currently have. I don't think it's about um, finding a new formula. I think our formula wins today.
0: Uh, Mark, just a little bit on uh, the competition, because uh, a little more rather, because we know, okay, Southwest, United, uh, they're, as Lisa said, they're upping their uh, their schedules, but not from the West Coast. And I think that might be, can you just give a little bit of color there? Because the West Coast also has to do with your ability to maintain margins. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that issue
3: yeah I, you know mo uh with the exception of flying as far east as uh, uh new york which we which we fly um as as you well know uh most of our services come off the west coast um Again, that's that, that's a market we know very well. Most of the people um, coming off the west coast are flying on on non-stop flights and not making connections, uh, and they're the they're the uh, they're the sort of customers who are most easily uh, sort of directly uh, marketed to um, uh, when you compare it to people uh, in the middle of the country who have to make connections. So um, when we go head to head off the west coast, um, we. As I say, we win. And indeed, uh, if you look uh, at where we are now, we we have a double-digit revenue advantage over our competitors off the West Coast.
0: All right, that, so, all right. So we got the West Coast uh, challenge and, and strength. Tell us about the aircraft because you're taking uh, the new A321neo from Airbus. That's got 25 fewer seats than the smallest planes that you fly today on that West Coast route. And then you're also doing a reconfiguration of the A330. You're going to have 16 fewer seats, which uh, might be able to offer that premium sit- uh, seating. And then it offsets the other carriers' growth because it pulls uh, capacity out of the market.
3: Yeah, well, we took the first of our 18A321neo uh, aircraft into our fleet just a couple of weeks ago. We're getting it ready for, for service early in the new year. Uh, we're very excited about this aircraft type. Yeah. Um, you know, all, all airplanes are, um, I mean, both manufacturers build terrific airplanes, and they're all optimized for certain kind of distances and certain market sizes. Yeah. It so happens that the 2,500 nautical mile uh, flight and the size, 180 Nine seats of the, the A321neo makes it um, absolutely the best airplane for the mission, and we think that is uh, a, a, an absolute competitive advantage yeah. vis-à-vis our competitors flying other narrow bodies. Uh, with respect to our wide-body fleet, we're just completing uh, the introduction of lie-flat seats on all of our wide-body aircraft, and um, we're seeing a phenomenal uptake uh, of, of, of demand for those And, you know, we always understood it would be important in the international marketplace. I think what's been uh, surprising and encouraging is to see uh, just how important it's become to the domestic marketplace as well.
1: Mark Dunkerley, thank you so much for joining us and best of luck in the next chapter. Uh, Mark Dunkerley was among the longest tenured chief executive officers in the airline industry. Uh, he is current president and chief executive officer of Hawaiian Holdings, uh, which is based in Honolulu. But he uh, has said that he will retire in March and be replaced by the airline's chief commercial officer, Pete Ingram. This is after uh, quite a long tenure at the airline company, it seems like, uh, I don't know, Pim, would you leave Honolulu? I guess I, I wouldn't know. I've never lived there, but it seems like a beautiful place to be. Saks has made a big push into consumer lending via its Marcus online lending system. Uh, after starting it up in recent years, we are now getting some data about uh, what their loan loss expectations are, as well as who they are lending to. And with us is Dakin Campbell, a financial reporter for Bloomberg News, to talk a little bit about what we're seeing. Dakin, you wrote this fantastic story looking at how Goldman says that they are expecting loan losses that are lower than what others in the industry would expect. Can you just sort of lay out uh, what you are talking about here?
4: Yes, and it's important to note that they actually didn't go as far as you suggest they went. They didn't tell us that the 4% losses that they disclosed in this recent slide, they didn't say those are going to be the losses for our portfolio. They said, hey, analysts and investors, these are losses for a hypothetical industry portfolio for a business built at scale. Now, many analysts looked at that and said, okay, these are the losses that Goldman is assuming for their own business. But it's it's important to note that they didn't actually come out and be that okay. clear about. All right,
1: it. so so you got some pushback by basically <laughs> from the story saying that Goldman wasn't saying that this was their projections, uh, but that you know they put this out as a hypothetical, and people are saying that their hypothetical is too low. Nevertheless, it's a benchmark. It, it's a benchmark, and it's a fascinating benchmark at a time when Goldman Sachs is trying to recreate uh, its identity and is trying to plow more into an industry that has been dominated by both credit card lenders and peer to peer online lenders. Uh, can you talk a little bit just about how ambitious Goldman Sachs has been and why this is such a lucrative area for banks?
4: Sure. So uh, Goldman would like to – a couple of months ago they told us they'd like to originate – 13 billion in loans over the next three years off of this platform. They started it 13 months ago. So they're ramping up very quickly. They've done 2 billion already. So uh, they've, they'll need to do another 11 or 12 billion. Uh, it, these are largely debt consolidation loans. So they're going out to people who've got credit card debt and uh, offering them this money at a slightly lower interest rate to retire that debt. As we all know, uh, because of the credit card debt that we may or may not have ourselves; those have high interest rates, and so Goldman thinks that if they can get in uh, at a slightly lower interest rate, but but still high, uh, this would be very lucrative for them. Just, I, mean, I mean, they t- they told us that the net interest margin. I don't want to get too jargony, but it's uh, banks now have net interest margins of two or three percent for their entire business. Goldman thinks they can get a net interest margin of ten percent on this business. Okay, just let me get a
0: couple of details in here. The maximum amount you can actually borrow on the Marcus platform is $30,000, correct? They make a big deal of saying that there is no fee associated with it, also that there is no prepayment penalty. First question, prepayment penalties are usually designed to make sure that those who lend the money are given the feeling that they will get this stream of interest payments continuously for the life of the loan. What happens to those investors, or in the back of the
4: situation, what happens to those loans when they get prepaid? Good question. So one competitive advantage that Goldman thinks they have is they're putting all of these loans on their balance sheet. So they're not selling any to investors. Okay. So in a prepayment, they So if anyone
0: takes the hit, they take the hit.
4: Yes. And they will take the money that's prepaid early, turn right around, and lend it out again.
0: Okay, second thing. It says that you cannot use these loans for any kind of uh, remuneration of student loan debt. Is that correct?
4: I believe so, and I believe that's a regulation. Correct. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but uh, they don't want you to be doing that.
0: All right. So this is really, as you just said, this is to try to consolidate uh, your loans, and it's unsecured. But
1: this is correct. This is this is largely what a lot of the online uh, lending marketplaces have done, right? I mean, this, yes, is this, Lending
4: Club, right, Prosper. It's, it, it's largely the same product.
1: It's it's directly uh, in competition with credit cards, basically, to try to get them a a lower rate, although still at like 26%. We're not talking low rate here. Uh, But it is fascinating to me, first of all, that Marcus is also plowing into non-prime borrowers, which is kind of interesting uh, in and of itself. Also, how did Goldman Sachs do this? Because if they're lending it and they're putting the loans in their books, this comes at a time when all the other banks are actually reducing their consumer loans. Yes, and that's,
4: that was one uh, large part of our story, is that they're getting into this business at a point when credit losses are lower than they've almost ever been. So you're getting into a business when credit losses are expected to go up. We've had an eight-year economic expansion. You've got to expect that to come to an end at some point. If you were doing this yourselves, you would not want to get into a business at this point in the cycle. It's almost the worst point to get into the business. Now, what Goldman will tell you, and they've said this publicly, is, hey, we're, get th- this, we're building this for the long haul and doesn't really matter when we get into it because we'll take early losses. And then a few years down the line, it'll be fine. This is, you know, multi-year. So take that for what you will.
0: All right. And uh, thank you very much. Dakin Campbell is our financial reporter for Bloomberg News. You can follow him on Twitter at Dakin Campbell. And I urge you to read his story about Goldman Sachs uh, and Marcus by Goldman Sachs, the online lending platform. Uber has disclosed that it paid hackers $100,000 in an effort to conceal a data breach that affects 57 million accounts. But this happened one year ago. So why are we only learning about it now? Here to help us understand the issue and its consequences is Shira Ovide, our Bloomberg Gadfly columnist when it comes to everything technological. Shira, so uh, maybe just lay out some of the details as we know them and what you believe the fallout will
4: be.
5: Right. So our colleague, Eric Newcomer, reported yesterday that uh, Uber's board did an investigation and discovered that there had been this data breach in October of last year, so as you said, more than a year ago, that affected uh, personal information on 57 million uh, Uber riders and also hundreds of thousands of U.S. Uber drivers. And the company didn't disclose it um, and instead paid hackers $100,000 To basically delete or say they would delete the personal information. And that was kind of the end of it. It was, you know, basically a cover up.
1: Before we get to the
5: sort of ethics
1: of not disclosing it and the fact that the New York attorney general is now looking into this and this could potentially add to the Uber's uh, legal woes, $100,000 is nothing. For what these hackers charge, and it makes me wonder: first of all, whether this was sufficient; second of all, what kind of hack was this; uh, and and third, you know, is
5: this uh, is there more to this than perhaps they're letting on? Yeah, these are all good questions. So I will say that uh, generally, Uber has been regarded as having a. A kind of robust security team. This is not a company like Equifax, our um, previous giant cyber hack victim, that seemed fairly incompetent about keeping user data secure. Although the irony of this Uber hack was that it happened at the same time that Uber was um, trying to repair relations with the Federal Trade Commission over previous misrepresentations of the um, security of Uber driver and rider information. So it's sort of ironic that it was kind of being hacked at the same time it was trying to repair relations over previous breaches.
0: Can you say this is a hack and be hacked? Because isn't Uber the company that was cited as being uh, sort of the... uh, poster child for using uh, nefarious methodology in order to not only uh, gain insight into their competitors, to game the system of their competitors, to flood the competitor's system uh, with uh, bogus uh, requests, and also, as I recall, to manipulate the data that was accessible to regulators in different municipalities.
5: Yes. Uh, among the kind of very long list of Uber's troubles over the years is all of those things. So, right? okay, that it so- spied on uh, riders um, using kind of an internal view of where people were going. It used its data, manipulated its data to kind of uh, make sure that regulators who were trying to crack down on Uber couldn't get rides and investigate Uber further. Yes, all of those things. Okay,
0: so if, all right, now if Uber says they're an asset light company, therefore they're not a transport company, they're a technology company, what special sauce does Uber now claim to have that makes them distinctive? Because if their technology is hackable, and clearly it is, and they don't know how to disclose it, uh, if they're not a technology, oh, they know.
1: If, they just decided not well, to. Well,
0: I mean, but uh, to be fair, I mean, you know, I haven't heard from their, you know, their side. But uh, if that's the case, so what is this special magic that they have? What what that demands a seventy billion dollar valuation?
5: Uh, that is a fair question. Although I will say that the the information that was attacked was not Uber's algorithm, which is a sophisticated way of kind of matching writer and uh, yeah, just everybody's license drivers. you know, the
0: drivers' licenses and personal right. uh, data right. it's of just, it's basically, credit cards for right example. they
5: breached a, a database of some personal information although Uber said that it doesn't include things like credit cards although you know if you're if you're a driver and it includes your license plate number you might have serious concerns about your that information leaking out.
1: I, my issue is, I mean, look, hacks are going to happen. Everyone who we have on this show who's in cybersecurity says it's not a matter of if another hack will occur, but when. So, you know, you can't necessarily say, well, Uber is going to go under now because they were hacked. I mean, this is par for the course. Uh, the question is the fact that they did not disclose this information. And this raises some serious questions about the current CEO, Khazr Shahi, uh, what he knew, when he knew it.
5: And, you know, how will his response determine the success of this company, I, I think that's exactly right. The, the the stunner here, to me, is not so much the hack, although now a r- repeated breaches of personal information on Uber that is serious and worrying. But you're right. It's the fact that they didn't disclose this for a year. And honestly, based on some of the reporting I've seen today, they might not have ever disclosed it, except that Uber is currently negotiating to sell billions of dollars in stock to SoftBank. And the board believed that this was material information that people who might sell shares to SoftBank might want to know about. So we might not have never known. And, and the The techniques they use to kind of cover this up raise more and more questions about both the current and the former leadership at Uber, which is why my column um, yesterday was basically about, you know, we need to know what Travis Kalanick, the CEO who got kind of pushed out over the summer, what did he know about the cyber attack and the cover up? And why didn't he disclose it? Did he tell the board? Did he tell the incoming CEO? Um... There's just so many unanswered questions about his role in this breach and his continued role of the company going forward. Sure, Ovide, thank you so much for joining us,
1: as always. Sure, Ovide, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist covering all things tech. Her columns are great. Uh, you should read them at NIGadfly on the Bloomberg or Bloomberg.com slash gadfly on the web.